Hello. I'm here talking to Kendall. I'm here talking to Annie. Today I'm talking about lifelong bad guy Scott Kimball. Content warnings are for sexual abuse and child sexual abuse and hiking with men. Join us on Patreon. We have a general support tier as well as a tier that gets you three bonus episodes a month. There's a bunch in there to listen to as soon as you sign up. You can also follow us on Instagram at Tell No One Podcast or send us an email at tellnoonepod at gmail.com. Sources are in the show notes. Everything's alleged, but this is definitely Tell No One. Enjoy. We've recovered. You've recovered. I've recovered. Annie's still dealing with the remnants of COVID. I thought I got away with not getting it from you. Girl, the Reaper will always collect. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the the final destination. Yeah, he will collect. If I'm dumb, then I'm dumb. It's the brain fog. If there's some congestion, it's the COVID stuff. The brain fog, like, I'm terrified of me. Yeah. Day one, I washed my phone. The phone is okay, though, right? Still? The phone... Went through a full wash cycle in my washing machine, and like it's fine. Like, you opened it midway through, like, three feet of water. Yeah, full of water. Getting rocked around in there. Yeah, water detergent. And then we were like, well, then shut it and let it finish. <laughs> <laughs> and then we pulled it out, and the phone... Is completely fine. Completely normal and fine. You have to be grateful for your phone being fine. Yeah, sometimes you just get really lucky like that, right, guys? Yeah. All right, this one's a big one, guys. Um... And by big, just like a lot of moving parts. So I'm going to try to be clear as I can. Good. Good. (laughs) Better be. (laughs) It's 2003. We meet Lori McLeod in Colorado. She's divorced. She lives with her 19-year-old daughter, Casey, in Denver. One day she's at a casino and she meets a man at the poker table. She had been impressed by how he had wheeled his mother in, who was suffering from MS. She's like, oh my God. He's so nice. Mm-hmm. She found him likable. His name is Scott Kimball. He's an FBI agent and they exchange numbers. So Scott Kimball is divorced with two kids. They have their first date on Valentine's Day. He pays for everything, flowers, deep sea fishing, you know, first date stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the marina. <laughs> Things are going well, but there have been some problems with Lori's daughter, Casey. She's was using meth in the past, um, she's gotten clean. How old? 19. 19. Um, but it kind of like fucked up her plans for herself. So she gets a job at Subway. So she feels a little like sad about that. But whatever. Mm, you do. When you're there, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Labor Day 2003. Scott notices in the apartment like a glass vial of like white chunks. So they're like meth maybe back on the meth are you back on the meth casey casey denies it hard thing about being a former meth addict is when there's meth in your house people are gonna assume it's yours (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) Mm. so she says no i'm not back on the meth but Lori says i am going to tell the police which is like you want to ruin her life even more so casey flees on her bike Um, Scott drives after her and eventually does find her and puts her and her boyfriend up in a hotel for a while to like cool things down. Casey's like, I don't want to see my mom. I'm scared. She's gonna like turn me in. Um, and also we don't want you on the street. So we'll pay for this hotel. Uh, so her Casey and her boyfriend are living in the hotel and she's working at subway still, but she doesn't have a car. Um, so Scott drives her to work. So, I mean, this isn't amazing, but like, we're not, we at least know where she is because she has run away before. 
Um, but one day her boyfriend shows up at Lori and Scott's house and says, Casey didn't come home to the hotel last night. Uh, and Subway called her mom and said that she hadn't shown up for her shift either, which is odd because her boyfriend says Scott had come to the hotel to give her a ride to work like usual. Uh huh. Uh huh. And Scott said, I didn't pick her up that day. I was busy. So they go to the police and the police say, don't worry. She'll come back one day. That's a quote. <laughs> She'll come back one day. Like a lost dog, I guess. Um, But Scott's like, don't worry. Well, they say like she's an adult. She can disappear if she wants. Scott's like, don't worry. I'll use my FBI connections to try to track her down. I'll like monitor her social security number. So like we can see if she's getting jobs somewhere or like opening a bank account, whatever. So Lori and Scott elope in Las Vegas while Casey's missing. Like she's gone. No, not to judge, but like, I'd have a hard time celebrating my love while my daughter were gone. I know. I think they're just kind of like, she is flaky and like has run away. Like, what am I going to do? Stop my life forever? Sure. And I do bet that like, you want to believe she left on her own. Yeah, of course. And you would like kind of make your brain believe that. For sure. So they go honeymoon camping near Route National Forest. Um, It's Casey's birthday as well. And they obviously don't hear from her. Hmm. So a few weeks later, Scott goes, oh, my God, Lori, Casey must have been here while we were away because her necklace is like on the doorknob and it wasn't there before. And like her makeup bags here and a neighbor had reported seeing her like go into the house. So she's here. She's alive. She's just like hiding from us. So Christmas comes and goes and Casey did not spend it with her biological dad. Um, I think his name is Rob. Like she usually does. A year goes by. Another Christmas, the next Christmas, her father is really sad. He goes to bed and he hears a doorbell ring and he's like, she's come for Christmas. And he goes down and answers the door and it's just his neighbor letting him know he left his garage door open. I would cry. Yeah, he cried on Dateline. In 2004, Lori and Scott move and start a cattle business. We've been gone for like a year or two. two. Yeah, well, we're... um, forever gone <laughs> like we're gone 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 uh his two sons visit every other weekend and that summer his son justin was severely injured in an accident on the ranch he's okay but like it was pretty crazy and we'll get into that later hmm. scott's uncle terry also moves up to the ranch to help out because justin can't help anymore so he comes and helps out uncle terry kind of weirds Lori out but he was only there for a few weeks and then he inexplicably disappeared uncle terry being scott's brother or uncle uncle okay ranches are a lot of work yes you can't just be getting rid of your ranch hands like this (laughs) it's unsustainable scott said that his uncle had won the lottery and had moved to mexico with a stripper named ginger got a blast it's like the roadrunner like there's a terry shaped hole in the wall Yeah, like people don't like leave like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Like when have you known Uncle Terry to be that spontaneous? Does he even have a passport? Or Let's like be honest. Anybody in life, like you don't you say goodbye when you leave for good. <laughs> no? Yeah. Oh boy. <clears throat> but the marriage isn't amazing. Scott is away a lot and demeaning Lori and they're growing apart. And during that summer. during that summer scott had twice called the police alleging domestic violence against Lori and leading to her arrest both times i think you're diabolical yeah i think you're like laying a plan for people to believe you and not her in the future sure 
Lori claimed both incidents were fabrication so Scott could move a waitress he was having a relationship with into the house. <laughs> you called, Are you kidding? <laughs> you called 911 to get me out so you could move in your waitress girlfriend. Scott is not handsome. Really? Fuck no. How fucking dare you then? Yeah. Even if you even if you were. But like there's nothing you? going on here. Wow. Beyond being an FBI agent. Right. Well, that has a draw, a certain kind of draw. Okay. By the fall, he had moved out and had rented a small house in Lafayette. He persuaded his girlfriend to buy him a gun as he was legally prohibited. <laughs> prohibited. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that while you were talking. <laughs> he persuaded his girlfriend to buy him a gun as he was legally prohibited from doing so. Well, you're only allowed to have your like official firearm or whatever. Yeah. Um. But once she gave him the gun, she never saw it again. All right, so early 2006, in a town nearby, a bank reports to the police that $80,000 had disappeared from one of their client's business accounts. Hmm. Someone's forging checks, perhaps? Um, Detective Gary Thatcher investigates and traces the checks, and all the money was being written to Rocky Mountain All-Natural Beef, the cattle business that belonged to Scott Kimball. They look on bank surveillance footage and see Scott cashing all these forged checks. He's a white-collar crime lover. He loves it. <laughs> um, they look into his history, and he had actually served some time for white-collar crimes. So Gary goes to Scott and Lori's house, which he thinks is Scott and Lori's house. Lori answers the door. She says, um, I hadn't seen Scott, but they ask her, can you come down for an interview then? She's like, yes, yeah, sure. Also, my daughter's um, been missing for two years, if that means anything. <laughs> and Scott was like the last person to see her, probably. Yeah, I bet you would begin to, when you got to like... When the real him began to emerge, yeah. I bet she felt like, oh, Ooh. fuck, did you have a, a part in that? Yeah. So Lori goes down for an interview and she mentions that Scott was an FBI agent. And Gary goes, okay, I don't know that you could be an FBI agent and have a criminal record. So he calls the FBI. And the FBI says, oh, yeah, like we know Scott Kimball. He isn't an agent. He's an informant. Different. Different. He, they do pay him, though. I bet. But like fucking different. He was involved in a murder-for-hire case they were working on and a different case about a missing woman named Jennifer Markham. So Jennifer Markham vanished outside of Denver six months before Casey disappeared. Her parents lived in Illinois and stopped hearing from her one day. She's 25. She's a single mom with a five-year-old son. She worked in a strip club and her and her boyfriend, um, she lived with her boyfriend, Steve Ennis. She dreamt of opening a sandwich and coffee shop but then Steve went to prison for like a drug ring and now she's disappeared. Mm. And people are like, she wouldn't have left her son alone. Duh. Duh. A month after her disappearance, her car was found in the Denver airport parking lot, but there's no record of her getting on a flight. So her dad keeps looking around for her. He's putting up posters. He's asking cops to run her name in the database. And the next day he gets a call from an FBI agent who had been investigating her disappearance, but they have nothing. They're like, we haven't found anything. There's no new evidence. There's nowhere to turn. But her father, Bob, keeps at them. And eventually the FBI guy says, we can meet with an informant we have who's working on the case. And this informant is Scott Kimball. Got it. They call him Joe Snitch. (laughs) (laughs) So Bob and Joe Snitch meet at the park. And he knew a lot about Jennifer's case. So Joe Snitch meets with Jennifer's parents. He says that he heard that her boyfriend, 
Steve Ennis, had killed her and asked him to remove the breast implants and her IUD from her body to prohibit, like, identification. Because they, like, have serial numbers on them. Joe Snitch also tells her father that I can take you to her body if you want. What? And that night, Scott... How did he know that? Oh. (laughs) Well. (laughs) But also, is it true? We don't know. Okay. So that night, Scott also shows up at jennifer's mother's hotel and tells her that if she signed a contract allowing him to tie her up and have sex with her he would show her what the killer had done to her daughter what the fuck right can an informant be that weird (laughs) no well yes (laughs) oh my god what are you talking about she declined she declined what are you talking about i'm not sure dude like sometimes i see these things (laughs) i don't know how to relay them to you Okay, how do they think he found out all that information about their daughter dying? Talking to her boyfriend, I guess. Okay. But now Jennifer's parents believe that he, that Scott is the killer. Joe Snitch. Okay, they do not believe him telling them that her boyfriend did it. They're like, I think you did it, fucker. Yeah, they're like, you're being so creepy that you did it, probably. Okay, got it. So her dad, Jennifer's dad, Bob, calls the FBI agents like, this guy for sure killed my daughter. And then like did weird shit to my wife yeah and like rubbed my face in it <laughs> um and the fbi guy was like no he's just making shit up like don't listen to him well then why are you hooking me up with him why are you listening to him yeah you told me to talk to him now you're telling me like no, don't, don't worry about him right like what? huh that was just for fun <laughs> so bob had written down his license plate number and had a friend run the plate and it is scott kimball surprise surprise January 2006, Detective Gary Thatcher starts calling around about Scott. A Louisville... Oh, no, it's actually Louisville, because it's in Colorado. It's Louisville. Mm. I remember that. Um, A Louisville detective calls him back and says, we're looking into Scott Kimball for the attempted murder of his son, Justin. Whoa. So the Justin cattle ranch accident. Let's get into it. Okay. One evening in July 2004, Scott and his boys were out in the backyard digging holes. Cody, the younger one, ran inside to tell Lori to call 911 as Justin had just been hurt, possibly with a broken leg. And how old are they? Like 14? No, he's 10. 10 and like 8. One? 10 and 8. No, the older one. Oh my one's god, 10. they're little. Yeah. You can't kill them. No. <laughs> no, certainly not. Um, Scott came in carrying his son in his arms and said something about his back. Lori, by then on the phone, told the dispatcher that there was a possible injury on her on his back, but before she could complete the call, Scott had put Justin in the car and driven away. She told the dispatcher not to send an ambulance as she presumed her husband was taking Justin to the nearest hospital. As you, as would. you would. So um, when Lori and Cody reached the hospital, Justin was on a gurney, suffering convulsions and nausea um, and like covered in blood. The nurse said that the fall had caused a serious injury. Lori said he had been injured at her house and was not aware that he had fallen in any way. The nurse explained that when he was brought in, his father said the boy had fallen out of the car. Scott came in and said that Justin had also been hit in the head by a metal grate. On the way there, Justin meant to open the car window, but opened the car door instead and fell from the car going 60 miles per hour. (laughs) He meant to roll down the window, but he opened the the door door. 60 miles an hour and rolled out. Right. You hit your kid over the head with a metal grate. And then threw him out of the car on the way to the hospital. Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Poor kid. I know. It's really, he was like really badly hurt. And like, dad? Yeah. 
Oh, God. Okay. The betrayal. So Scott's mom, Barb, after she heard about the accident, went to her insurance office and changed the beneficiary of the life insurance policy on Justin from Scott to herself. She later told one of her employees that she did so because she feared Scott had attempted to kill his son, Justin, for the insurance money. Yeah, you know you have a rotten child. Yes. And she said um, a few weeks earlier, Scott had asked her who the beneficiary was. Wow. Yeah. You have to get a bad vibe to know, like, my kid might be really bad. Yeah. After two weeks in an induced coma, Justin survived. But his first words, once he could speak again, were, why did dad do this to me? He recalled his father dropping a grate on him and pushing him from the car. Kendall. I know. I can't even wrap my head around that. They did not have enough evidence and could not press charges. I mean, I'm telling you he did it. I'll tell you he did it. I'll testify. (laughs) Um, The prosecutor, Katerina Booth, is upset that she can't prosecute but she's so she's like looking around like we got to build a case for something for this guy he seems evil to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah gary the detective and katarina the prosecutor are ready to charge him with the check fraud okay but he disappeared but he is keeping in touch with Lori, sending her pics of pics that's what i wrote my notes (laughs) (laughs) sending her pictures um from alaska but the police were tracing his calls and he was not in alaska His cell phone pinged him to Palm Springs, California. They track him down there, and there was an hours-long car chase, which finally ended when he ran out of gas. So his financial crimes were so many that he could be labeled like habitual criminal, which would give him more time. He could be sentenced to 48 years for white-collar crimes. So he called Katarina Booth and another female prosecutor, (laughs) quote, the Boulder Bitches. And she was like, rock on. (laughs) (laughs) To do all of that wrong in your life, try to kill people, whatever. And then call, (laughs) I mean, and then call people who are doing their job. Hey, to kill, to commit a ton of crime, to be like, you're a fucking bitch. People are like, these guys always do. They're like, they're out to get me. It's like, they're, you broke the law. They're the prosecutor. You broke the law a lot. Yeah. They, like, have to do it. It's like the witch hunt. Like, do you really not think you did anything wrong? Like, you must know. Well, I mean, there are people who genuinely, like, in their hearts cannot feel guilt. Yeah, yeah. It's just, like, this one bitch. As if, like, she were, weren't were replaced by someone else, they wouldn't also be prosecuting you. Yeah, because, like, you're violating the, like... Um, code. The, like, community code of conduct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Bob Markham is still actively searching for his daughter, Jennifer, and talks to the press about this weird meeting he had with Scott Kimball. Um, So Casey's dad, Rob, sees the article and is like, interesting. The last person to see my daughter was Scott Kimball. And now this guy says his daughter disappeared and Scott Kimball's involved somehow. Mm -hmm. We should chat. So they meet. Um, Rob calls the FBI and they do say, yes, he is an informant for us, but he isn't a violent guy. He just embezzles and steals hundreds of thousands of dollars. (laughs) And Lori confesses to her ex-husband, Rob, that the week Casey went missing, Scott also was missing for a week. Oh, Lori. She's like, I didn't know where he was for that entire week either. Oh, Lori. (laughs) (laughs) Very much. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying, girl, 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 girl. So fall of 2006, the two dads show up to the FBI and Rob says, I don't care if it's just her fingernail. I want her home. So FBI special agent Jonathan, this is a real, he is in the Dateline episode. And I'm like, 
stunned by him. <laughs> <laughs> he meets with his boss and he's like, oh no. <laughs> We've done wrong. Yeah. He's like, I just met with two fathers whose daughters are missing, presumed dead, and they think a former informant of ours is responsible. Like, this might be my life's work. He does say, like, it's my life's work now <laughs> to write this wrong. You know what, though? Like, there are people who, like, want to do right. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. we, don't, we, we don't talk about them a lot. <laughs> they're out there. But they're out there. So FBI Jonathan teams up with Gary Thatcher, our detective. And we say, okay, how did Scott come to be an informant? Let's talk about Scott. Scott was born in Boulder, Colorado in 1966. When he was 10, his mother Barb came out as a lesbian, leading to his parents' divorce. His father, Virgil, left the state and remarried. In his early adolescence, Scott had his first encounter with law enforcement when police were called to the house after he had fired a gun out the window at a neighboring house. Can't be doing that. That's giving I hate Mondays, you know? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know. So... A neighbor of um, his grandmother, Theodore Payton, begins sexually abusing both Scott and his brother at a cabin he owned in Nederland. <laughs> God damn. I'm taking creative license on the pronunciation of that. But uh, how'd he get him? Um, they hang out their grandmother's mobile home a lot, and he's like in the mobile home park with them. So wow. I don't know. So Payton's abuse progressed from having Scott touch him and photographing the boy naked to tying him up and raping him and recording it on film. Oh, my really God. Really horrible stuff. Kind of couldn't be Worse. more awful. No. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. The butterfly effect type exactly shit. Exactly that. Exactly that. Peyton threatened to kill Scott's father, who had lived in Montana, if he told anyone. So when Scott was 23, he shot himself in the head in a suicide attempt but the bullet glanced off of his skull and he survived. It left a visible scar on his forehead and he was in critical condition for several days, but um, he did survive. His cousin Ed remarked that Scott came out of the experience changed as if he had, quote, lost his conscience. Well, you like might have. Like you have like the number one head injury. So afterwards, Scott and several other boys whom Peyton had molested reported him to the Boulder police. He was arrested and convicted of seven counts of sexually assaulting a child and was sent to prison. Scott continued to feel a deep sense of shame and, quote, less of a man for it, according to a girlfriend. Oh, no, we're going to pay for that. Yeah. Scott wrote a letter to the judge begging him to sentence Peyton to additional prison time, saying, quote, he has denied me my right to a normal, healthy, innocent childhood. He has damaged my life forever. But when asked about the abuse and its effect on him in 2010, he said that was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, horrible when people do bad shit in their life, but you know where it came from and like they were wronged too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you don't get to like feel like um, you've been violated and you don't feel like a man anymore and then like kill women. Right. And like... We all have to pay now, I guess. Yeah, like, what? I'm paying for that? I didn't fucking... I didn't diddle. (laughs) Right. So he starts turning to white-collar crime, like, fraud at the age of 22. He was convicted of passing bad checks, his first felony in Montana. In Colorado, he burglarized homes. And Montana also charged him with running an illegal hunting outfitting business. Hmm. 
A brief first marriage failed, and in 1993, he married Larissa Hence and moved with her to Spokane, Washington, where they had their two sons, Justin and Cody, before divorcing in 97. So their relationship continued for another two years after their divorce, ending when Hence accused him of rape. Scott told the police she was just trying to secure full custody of their sons after she failed a lie detector test. No charges were filed. Cool. And here's a here's a real kicker. Prosecutors also saw the case as, quote, complicated because the couple had continued to have consensual sex after the incident. So how does that say that something I said happened didn't happen? Like, I'm, I'm really struggling to understand what that has to do with a, an assault I said took place. Well, they're like, they have to be operating under the, like, assumption that if you get raped... It is, like, by your enemy. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. When, like, in reality, women get raped by, like, an intimate partner. Yeah. A fucking friend. Yeah. Like. So the following year, 2000, Scott's violation of probation for an earlier fraud conviction revoked his earlier suspended sentence and put him back in prison in Montana. A year later, he absconded from a halfway house, stole a truck, along with a till from his employer, and shortly afterward returned to Spokane, where he broke into Hence's home kidnapped her and raped her again oh my god she filed charges and an arrest warrant was issued see i guess it needs to be like that dramatic to to be considered an assault okay great and like um them not doing fuck all about the original rape yeah allowed the other one to ever happen yeah it's also like turns out he's a really horrible guy (laughs) like yeah yeah. like i could have told you a while ago yeah So he fled to Alaska. Oh, this is probably where he got the pictures from. (laughs) Where he posed as his brother, got engaged to another woman, and resumed his career in check fraud, writing $25,000 in forged checks. He was again arrested and convicted, and in federal prison, he convinced FBI agents that he would work for them as an informant. So a fellow inmate, Arnold Flowers, was planning to have a federal judge and prosecutor in his case, along with the witness, killed. So Scott tells the FBI about this. So this is actually true. He did tip them off to this. Mm. With Scott's help and an undercover agent, the FBI recorded Flowers and his girlfriend making the arrangements with people who they believed to be killers, and they were arrested in March 2002. So he does help the FBI with this actual, like, murder-for-hire thing. Mm. So Scott tells the FBI he could help them with more cases. Another fellow inmate, he said, had boasted of having killed a federal prosecutor, Thomas Wales in his Seattle area home a year before. For his safety, Scott was transferred to the low-security Englewood Federal Prison in Littleton, Colorado, outside of Denver. He discreetly let it be known that he had information about planned crimes that FBI agents might want to know about, and soon the Bureau's liaison to the prison, Carl Schlaff, came to visit him. Scott told Schlaff that fellow convict Steve Ennis, we know Steve, who he had befriended, was allegedly plotting to kill witnesses expected to testify in an important trial about his ecstasy ring. So this is where he gets in contact with Steve Ennis, Jennifer's boyfriend. Got it. So Scott tells Schlaff that he had told Ennis that he would personally kill the witnesses against Ennis after his impending release. The next step, Scott said, was for Ennis's girlfriend, Jennifer Markham, to introduce him to Ennis's partner once he was out of prison. The partner would then give him the gun to kill the witnesses. We we got it? Okay. <laughs> we got it, but like, what a convoluted little dumb plan. It's like, for what? And like, you don't know me that well. I'm your... Zelly. <laughs> <laughs> da, da, da. So within two weeks of his release, Scott made contact with 25-year-old Jennifer Markham. 
He told her that he owned some coffee shops in Seattle. Remember, that was her dream, mm-hmm. the Stona coffee shop, and that she should move there and manage one for him. And like he would help her get into the coffee business. So when Jennifer tells her boyfriend, Steve Ennis, about Scott, he suggests that she take him up on his coffee shop offer and move to Seattle. It was the last he or anyone other than Scott had ever heard from her. So the FBI sets Scott up with like a dinner with Jennifer to talk about this supposed they're going to murder the witnesses thing. So while Jennifer is on the recording calling one of the witnesses against Ennis a scumbag who deserves to die, (laughs) the conversation went no further in that direction than that. Yeah, I'm not going to kill them. No, that was not real. So Scott is like weaving a lot of crazy webs. Like he's lying to everybody. So shortly after this dinner where she's recorded saying that, Jennifer moves all of her belongings into Scott's home in preparation for the move to Seattle. Schlaff, the FBI guy, later found that Jennifer and Scott's cell phones, normally very busy, showed no activity at all the next day. Scott did not resume using his for another three days, and Jennifer never did. Parking records at the Denver International Airport showed that Jennifer's green 96 Saturn had been left there early on February 18th, and at the end of March, it was considered abandoned and towed for unpaid fees. Two letters to her Colorado Springs address seeking payment went unanswered, and her son's father said she had not visited or made contact since she moved out. So this is when it's known that she's missing. Mm -hmm. Two months later, FBI guy Schlaff was driving Scott to a meeting with Ennis's drug partner, Jason Price, at a local chain restaurant. I'd like to think it was Chili's. The agent asked if he had any news about Jennifer's whereabouts. Scott said he had heard she was dead. And the FBI guy's like, that's surprising. Um, I wasn't aware that she would be killed. Like, why would she be killed? She's not really involved in the drug stuff. Mm-hmm. But Scott did not, like, expand on that at all. Yeah. Why do you think he killed her? For fun. I think he's truly just like likes to kill girls, but like in a crazy way and like to pull one over on people. Yeah. That's part of it. Cause he could just like go find it. He doesn't have to do this whole thing. Maybe part of it too, like to keep the thing going. Yeah. Keep the informant thing going. True. Yeah. If I'm now, I actually heard about another death too. Right. 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 And I'm, I'm valuable. FBI guy Schlaff recalled that he had been unable to reach Scott the weekend Jennifer disappeared. Oh. Uh-huh. FBI guy. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> All of Jennifer's furniture was also at Scott's house. Yeah. Everything I own and me are with him. Uh-huh. And then I die? And then I'm missing. And you couldn't contact either of us at the same time. What? Put it together. But Scott explained this by showing the agent a lease agreement apparently signed by Jennifer, allowing him to use her furniture for a year in exchange for $400. This is rent center <laughs> What are you talking what about? What the fuck? A what? <laughs> a contract for what? My couch. And then you can have my couch, but where am I? But truly, where do I? Where am I? I don't need a couch anymore. <laughs> Yeah. <gasps> Dead in my tracks. Like. <laughs> okay. A little while later, FBI guy Schlaff goes to Scott and tells him the FBI is done working with him as an informant. But then Scott tells him that that guy, Jason Price, Stephen Ennis's partner, mm. had confessed to him that he had killed Jennifer. Price, he said, had shown him a photograph of her body bound and gagged before he put her in his trunk and drove to Rifle 
a city west of Denver, where he dumped it in a creek. Scott added that Price had asked him to go to the body and remove her breast implants. Similar thread to what he told her parents. Mm -hmm. So like, what the fuck? (laughs) What are you doing? So the police go talk to Lori and they say, girl, it's not looking good for you. Girl, I think that you have been deeply bamboozled. Mm. I think they just said, like, we're investigating him for something else. And it looks like really similar to the fact you have a missing daughter. Like, it might not be good here. I kind of can't believe it. Right. And she goes, well, what about Uncle Terry? And they go, okay, let's talk about Uncle Terry. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) Scott's Uncle Terry had come from his home in Alabama with his two dogs to assist in um, the care of the ranch while Justin was hospitalized after his dad tried to kill him. And like, were you depending on me, the 10-year-old, the to keep up the ranch? And if so, why would you throw me out of a moving car? Lori disliked Uncle Terry because he drank regularly and often, ar- and often walked around the house naked. Ew. Ew. He wa- it says he was, in addition, obese and socially awkward, which is like... Leave him alone for that. Fuck. (laughs) That's why you don't like him, Lori? Jeez. (laughs) Harsh critic, Lori. Socially awkward and naked all the time. Like, how do you figure? (laughs) Right. Like, he's not that awkward. (laughs) Or maybe a bit of like, I don't know what is appropriate. Oh, that's what she means, maybe? Yeah, like socially inept, maybe? Like, I am naked right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So among the possessions he brought with him was a briefcase filled with thousands of dollars in cash. So you're telling me Scott called his uncle and said, bring all your money? Mm-hmm. And he disappears two weeks later? Very bell. Yeah, very bell goddess of him. <laughs> <laughs> so back in Alabama, Terry's wife, Karen, pleaded with him not to move to Colorado. The couple, over 11 years of marriage, had established a comfortable routine, and she felt it was not the right time in their lives to mess it up. So she recalled that... His one earlier attempt at going into business with Scott at a logging um, thing in Washington had ended with Terry returning to Alabama following a protracted argument with Scott. So she's like, you've tried this. You guys don't get along. Don't bother. Mm -hmm. So him and Karen actually divorced before he moved up there, which is why he got all that money. Like that was his like divorce, like settlement. That's all his money in the world. He took it out in cash and brought it to his uncle. I mean, his nephew. But Lori did not have to deal with Terry for very long. One day she came home from work and found that the furniture had been rearranged. Mm-hmm. Scott had taken a white leather couch with a visible stain outside. And when Lori asked what the stain was, he said that one of his uncle's dogs had vomited on it. She did not think the stain was dog vomit and told Scott that. He suggested that perhaps Terry had vomited on it himself and blamed the dog. Um, But it didn't matter because Terry had won some money in the Ohio State Lottery, met a stripper, and decided to move to Mexico. All while I was at work? Wait, today? (laughs) Yeah, he's gone. Hasta hasta luego. De nada. De nada, Terry. (laughs) Enjoy. I take my chihuahua. I take my chihuahua. And he's like, on the couch. blaming the dog what the fuck (laughs) Lori said she found that improbable only in the sense that any woman could ever find terry attractive even with him having (laughs) oh fuck Lori! but very much appreciated his absence we get it he's a dead man Lori. now you know he's a dead man you can hold off on the slander (laughs) (laughs) to be like 
How could a girl touch him even if he gave her all the money in the world? <laughs> she won the lottery. <laughs> oh my god. She's like, I didn't believe that incredulous story only because he's so ugly. Not the who wins the lottery in a day. In the weeks after Uncle Terry disappears, Terry's bank notices suspicious activity on his credit card, which is later traced to Scott. Not in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Scott also used his uncle's name to buy 21 head of cattle for almost $12,000 from a brush ranch in November. The ranch then complained to the State Department after Scott failed to pay. Terry's bank found that over $23,000 in bad checks had been drawn on his account over four months. They reported it to the FBI, but it is not known what action the Bureau took, if any. Um, a year after Terry disappeared, his brother Virgil, Scott's father, received an email from Terry Kimball at Yahoo.com saying Terry was enjoying himself in Mexico, de nada, and was unlikely to ever return. But, okay, so Lori had kept all of Scott's shit. They are now separated, divorced. And one of those things is a grocery receipt from a supermarket in northern Colorado in a town called Walden dated the day after Casey had last been seen. Note that. The police also find his computer, which had evidence of creating that fake Yahoo account. I mean, duh. Some rape porn. Some, like, smut. Some um, bad things. <laughs> yeah. Newspaper clippings about BTK. But one that really freaked them out was a picture of a young woman who's not in any distress, just, like, smiling. Like, against the wall. Like, and that got, got him. Because they go, who the fuck is that? Yeah. Well, we'll find out who she is. June 2007, Scott is in prison for check fraud. Oh, BTK bind. Huh? The binding. He liked the binding. He liked the binding. That happened. I just remember that happened to him when he was a kid. He got tied up. He did? I forgot that. You told me. I did? Yeah, the guy tied oh, him up. Oh, this guy got him. tied up. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, that is just... And, like, also part of, like, the BTK thing is, like, taunting people. Yeah. Like, the taunting. And I think Scott likes the taunting as well. Mm. So Jonathan and Gary are guys. Interview him. He denies everything about everything. Now that he's in jail, they have time to, like, work on more cases for him. Um, He's denying any knowledge when they interview him. But that woman, his second wife, repeated her rape allegations and added that she suspected him of having at one time tried to poison her. Okay. A former cellmate of his who, after release, worked for his meat business, recalled how one night while they were drinking, Scott unprompted asked him if, quote, fake titties were traceable. Get over that. <laughs> Enough! <laughs> so honestly, where there's smoke, there's fire. Someone's concerned about Jennifer's breast implants. Yeah, but if by, like, traceable, you mean, like, can we track them like a phone? No. Like, no, they don't ping off of anything. I think he might mean that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, if you find a body, like... You found the body. You, don't you can DNA to... test it. Yeah. I think he might literally mean, like, can you track a girl by, by her, her boobies? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, Scott. Well, upon being told that they were... I mean, I guess he's an idiot. He doesn't know what DNA is. He thinks, like, the only way to identify her is, like, the serial number on her boobs and her IUD. Okay. He seemed visibly upset and later asked the man if he would, quote, as a friend, take something from a body. The man refused, but the detectives were struck by the similarity of what Scott had claimed that Ennis had told him. The same thing coming up is like, it's probably true. Yeah. And like when people lie, but they tell a part of the truth. Like, yeah, yeah, 
everything I'm telling you did happen, but he didn't do it. I did it. Right, right. So they talk to one of his prison friends, Stephen Hawley, who is in prison for life for bank robbery. You shouldn't be in jail for life. No, I know. They look at, before they go to talk to him, they want to learn a little bit more about him. So they look at his visitor's log for um, the few years previous and find that a woman named Leanne Emery visited him very often. Uh, And they talk to him and he's like desperately in love with her. The robber. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. So he and Scott had created an escape plan for Stephen Hawley to meet the love of his life, Leanne, in Mexico. Scott says, give me her number, but don't give her my real name. Have her call me Hannibal. Yeah, I'm not going to go no, into deep on that. I don't even care about that. No, I don't even care. <laughs> so Stephen Hawley tells his girlfriend, Leanne, you can trust this guy. I mean, if he once you get past the fact that he is insisting on being called Hannibal, (laughs) he's a really nice guy. Turns out Leanne's been missing since 2003. Oh, my fucking God. She said she was going on a trip to Mexico with her friends. But just a few days later, her car was found abandoned in Utah. Her father does not believe it. But when he's told the license plate reads Dalgal for a Dalmatian girl, she loved Dalmatians. (laughs) He is shocked and horrified. (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel that we've reached a point where we're like, okay, do not give Scott Scott access to your girlfriend anymore. No. He will kill her. Cancel that. So Leanne's father files a missing persons report and nothing happens, obviously. <laughs> but like an abandoned car, people. Yeah. Like two women have had like their car abandoned. Yeah. They found it and, and we don't care what happened to her. They just walk away. You think she got out and walked on foot. To where? Literally to where. Yeah, it's so stupid. They just don't want to look into it. Yeah. They look into some of her emails and between friends and one says, I'm currently having to trust someone I don't really know that well. (laughs) Hannibal is a really dangerous guy, but like once you get to know him, he's fine. Like, come on. Nobody looked into her murder then. No. Well, her dad is trying, but that's it. So her father calls Stephen Hawley in prison and he says, I haven't heard from her either. You need to call the FBI. Oh, wow. So Jonathan and Gary identify her as the the weird picture that was on Scott's laptop. That was her. So here's how this happened. At one of their early meetings, Scott told FBI guy Schlaff that Steve Hawley, boyfriend of Leanne, was planning another attempt to um, flee, to escape prison. I love that about him. To be a bank robber trying to like, what are you going to tunnel out? I don't know. I like it. So, um, see, he's giving him a little, he's giving the FBI like enough truth truth to like do this weird shit. Yeah. So Schlaff notifies the prison, which puts Steve Hawley in solitary confinement. But Scott had actually initiated the plan under which he would, once free, drive his truck to the prison wall have others create a diversion, throw a ladder over the wall through which Holly would climb, and then the two would drive off towards Mexico where Leanne would be waiting for them. All right, everybody. He's not the most brilliant guy in the world. Yeah, like, we're in the year, like, 2010 or whatever. 2002. Okay, but we're not in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Certainly not. You like, cannot... what are you doing? No. <laughs> like, no. I'm pi- everything you're talking about, I can picture only in black and white and scrambly. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's not real. It you're going to ladder out of a, a high security prison? You're going to drive your truck up to the jail with a ladder and throw it over? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, so that was what the plan is. Okay. And that's why... 
Stephen Hawley tells Leanne to get in contact with this guy, Hannibal, to plan their escape. To get you to... Mexico, so we where- can finally be together. Mm-hmm. I will join you when he then comes back for me When he comes jail. back for me with the really, really, really tall ladder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about Leanne. She's an Idaho native who had grown up in Colorado after her parents moved there. She's 24. She also worked as a stripper and had briefly married a Texas man who was incarcerated at the time, which led her to growing involvement with people involved in drugs and other crimes. Mm. It's probably how she got to know Stephen Holly. So Scott reached out to her near the end of 2002, around the same time he was also meeting with Jennifer Markham, and began involving Leanne in scams involving the theft of credit card related checks from the mail. And because Holly was now in solitary confinement and could not receive or make phone calls, Leanne is clinging more and more to Scott, whom she admitted in an email to a cousin was, quote, dangerous, but if you don't fuck with him, he's your best friend. Like, why is he doing this to these, like, men and women? Like, he's killing these guys' (laughs) girlfriends. I think he likes that. I think, yeah. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Very He's like a serial killer, but, like, worse? I don't know, because he's, like, murdering a bunch of women because he likes to murder women but he's doing it to people he loves like he's well knows he's murdering their people close to them his wife's daughter i think you're right i think he i mean it feels like the ultimate version of like showing up at the vigil you know what Mm -hmm, i mean like mm -hmm. not only am i showing up like i know i did it and you don't know i did it but like i'm like heavily involved in your life and you don't know i did it yeah like i got you to kind of participate like you set her up for this So a week after that email, on January 16th, 2003, Leanne returned to her parents' home, packed her car for what she said was a trip to Mexico to go caving. So shortly after she left, Leanne phoned her sister to say that just in case anything happened to her, remember that she loved her. Leanne. Fuck. (laughs) Well, I think Leanne's like, well, I'm not coming back. I'm going to be de nada in Mexico living my best life with Stephen Hawley. I get that. And I, like, I love that for you. <laughs> I don't think that's what's happening. So instead of going to Mexico, Leanne and Scott spent the next week traveling through four different states, stealing checks worth a total of $15,000. They regularly charged their gas on her credit card. She also used it to buy a laptop at Best Buy. And on January 27th, she called her parents to tell them that she was staying in Mexico a little longer, but she was actually in Colorado. And that's the last time they heard from her. Leanne had apparently also been in the Denver area since she bought and mailed a gift certificate to her sister from there that same day. That night, she checked into a hotel in Grand Junction, and a clerk there recognized her from a photo, but said later that at the time, her hair, long and blonde in the photo, had been cut short and dyed a dark color. Yet hard when, like, the entire plan he told you is to disappear. And to be sneaky about it. Yeah. Oh my, it's like, what is this weird web? Uh, Stop setting a trap for me. (laughs) (laughs) From the hotel, she called a cousin. They talked for two hours, during which Leanne said that that if Scott, for whom she was calling Hannibal, learned of the conversation, he would kill both of them, otherwise saying she was, quote, pretty safe. I think she's, like, building up the, like, I'm into some crazy shit. Yeah. And, like, if you're involved with people who are a little bit rotten all the time, like, maybe (laughs) maybe you have a weird gauge for, like, what kind of danger you're actually in. I mean, her boyfriend is in prison for life. So, like, we're she's operating a different level. Yeah. She could not say where she was, but claimed to be with some corrupt police officers. 
He probably told her that she's shit an too. FBI, he's an FBI agent or something. Yeah. I hate that lie. Two days later, January 29th, she checks out of the hotel. According to Scott's later account, he drove with Leanne to Bryson Canyon in Utah's Book Cliffs. Near the end of the road, he asked her to go hiking with him. Hey, Mayday. We're never hiking with men. Yeah. We're never hiking with men. They went up um, a wash into a dead-end box canyon, then up a cliff face. Leanne told him that his face had changed, and then he told her to take off her clothes and kneel on the rocks. Oh, no. He then shot her in the head with a handgun she had bought for him a few days earlier. The day afterwards, her abandoned car was found near the town of Moab, Utah. So her parents tracked her credit card records, learning that she had never actually been in Mexico. So that's what happened to Leanne, the the girl in the picture. Mm -hmm. 2008. Detectives are talking to him and he says, I didn't kill any of these girls, but I think I can help you find them. A few months later, he says, so because federal prison is a little nicer, what if one of these girls disappeared on federal forest land? Like, would that change anything? So he had told them one story that they had not heard before, that Casey had died of a drug overdose on national forest land. Mm hmm. Okay. Mm hmm. So FBI Jonathan brain blasts and remembers the grocery store receipt from Walden, which is near the Route National Forest. So he calls the U.S. Forest Service and says, have you recovered any hikers? Have you recovered any dead bodies recently? Mm. They say yes. Before winter, a hiker spotted a skull in the woods. The sheriff had collected the remains. They send it to the lab for analysis, and it's identified as being Casey McLeod. Does Route National Forest sound familiar? That's where they had their honeymoon destination. They went camping. Where he had dumped her daughter's body, yeah. Lori said that sometimes on their vacation, he would be gone for hours at a time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Doing what? I don't know. (gasps) (laughs) So now they have actual evidence and they go to talk to him. He said he would plead guilty to white collar crimes for 48 years in exchange for no first degree murder charges. But he would plead to second degree murder and in exchange would lead detectives to where he had left Leanne, Jennifer and Uncle Terry. Oh, Uncle Terry, too. Yeah. Let's not forget Uncle Terry. <laughs> I mean, he's not an amazing guy, but he doesn't deserve to die this way. No. What Lori he hates do his wrong? guts. Walk around naked. <laughs> like, you're going to kill me for that? Instead <laughs> of capital offense. <laughs> February 2009, they head out to Utah to look for Leanne and Jennifer's bodies. Um, it's a huge area full of, like, canyons. Scott's with them, obviously, to point out where he left them. But he's, like, loving this. Mm-hmm. Um, They find nothing the whole day and then drive home. They try again a few days later, and he takes them to a second creek bed and says, Merry Christmas, this is Jennifer. They put a flag there and start digging. They excavate it, and they found nothing. And in the Dateline episode, Keith Morrison's talking to the detective and says, you start to feel like an idiot after a while, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Keith, I did. (laughs) So they spend a whole other day um, searching, and they find nothing. A month later, they try again. They approach another creek bed, but now Scott is acting weird at this place. He then is like, nope, this way, and like points in the opposite direction. But FBI guy Jonathan stays and goes in the direction he tells them not to go in. So he finds a small hair clip with hair in it and like bones. Coroner comes and collects the rest of the bones. Scott keeps bringing them to different locations, um, but they find nothing. 
Uh, they identify the bones as being Leanne's. Um, and they also find a bullet nearby. So, And they keep searching for Jennifer, but they eventually have to stop because they're like, this is going on for too long. And he's like, loving it. We don't want to do anything he wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're searching for Terry in a different place. Scott provides a detailed map, um, description of clothing that Terry was wearing, and what change he had in his pocket. Ew. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he says he brought him to an area above the Vale Ski Resort. Um, they walk 10,000 feet up and they spot a gray tarp w- wrapped around in a rope. And it's Terry. He's like mummified. Uh, there was a bullet hole in the back of his skull and they also find the bullet and it matches the bullet found with Leanne. Why kill Terry? For the money. The I money think. I had. They say they consider for the money and also he might have known that the justin thing wasn't an accident Mm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. who knows so now his plea deal i always do that his plea deal is null because he did not lead them to jennifer in the fall of 2009 he appears in court in a wheelchair oh sing me a different tune (laughs) and agrees to two counts of second degree murder and is sentenced to 70 years in prison why do they all do that the wheelchair thing like um joseph d'angelo Harvey and Harvey Weinstein. Those guys, they all are like, oh, I can barely get my ashes. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely get my ass to court. How could I have raped all those ladies? <laughs> Truly. Truly. And it's like, well, the thing is, you've been doing it for 20 years. So you were a little <laughs> spryer then. Yeah. In 2017, he tries to organize an escape by using a helicopter get off that like you're not <laughs> you're not at the chateau deep like you're not getting out <laughs> it's prison uh the fbi gets wind of the plan and foils it <laughs> so they're still investigating him for other murders in 2004 a woman named katrina powell was found murdered in an alley near his workplace she didn't have hands oh i know he's obsessed with identifying the body yeah cutting off her face (laughs) right true people are gonna come by and be like katrina is that you yeah (laughs) no (laughs) i hate that cutting things out of the body like leave it be she has teeth like what about the dental like come on leave her alone they also found some of scott's like handwriting depicting how he had killed a sex worker and she was a sex worker at the time so Mm. might be her um and he was also overheard bragging about killing a sex worker and also Mm. like he's crazy so um, FBI Jonathan tends to believe that there are between 15 and 21 victims of his, perhaps. Lori had her marriage to Scott annulled in 2008. Mm. And at his sentencing, she said that she felt Casey had forgiven him. Wait. She said that she felt Casey had forgiven her and was thus willing to forgive her killer. Scott has since remarried to a woman who's also incarcerated for child abuse, but they've never met physically. Um, Theodore Payton, who sexually abused Scott. And a bunch of children. And a bunch of children died in January 2017. Early in 2011, Scott reportedly wrote a lengthy handwritten letter to his family describing in greater detail the deaths of all four of his victims. His accounts were slightly different from those he had previously given, and the FBI also received a copy. He took responsibility for Leanne's death, which he had previously attributed to someone else, saying that he had shot her in the head, like I said. So while he had earlier simply claimed to have merely made it possible for someone to kill Jennifer um, and had been present at her death, now he said he had prepared a fatal heroin hotshot for her. 
Uh, Scott also, again, attributed Casey's death to drugs, saying she had taken a combination of alcohol, meth, and oxycodone and overdosed in his presence near where her body was found. And he also confessed to killing Terry. He later said that his uncle Terry was a child molester, and that's why he killed him. But none of those claims were ever corroborated. And now he's just in prison for life. They never found Jennifer's body, though, Mm. which is fucked up. Tell no one, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.